And we have before us today the last preserved words which the Apostle Peter was caused by the Spirit to write. And they're very exciting words for us as to how we will see. Uh, there are words, there are words with which some have found great difficulty. And this really is not a chapter to read commentators on. And they really struggle to understand this chapter. And the simple reason why they struggle to understand the chapter is they don't consider the context. So what we're going to do this morning, particularly in this first session, uh, is some contextual Bible study. We're going to have a look at the Apostle Peter, and we're going to have a look at the audience to which these two epistles were sent, and we're going to look at the background and the reasons why the Spirit caused them to be written. So, who was the Apostle Peter? Well, he was one of the 12 men that Jesus chose that he might give them power and that he might send them forth to preach. And it might just be worth mentioning in the current context in the brotherhood that it was 12 men that Jesus chose. It was not six men and six women or any other ratio of that. And that's a fact, it's not an inference. And those who read relevant material will know what I'm talking about. So when Jesus sent them forth, he sent them, and the reference is Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. And he said, go not in the way of the Gentiles. Into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Peter and his 11 fellow apostles were sent to the Jews. Galatians chapter 2 records that there was a meeting in Jerusalem between 12 and the Apostle Paul. And at that meeting, it was agreed by all parties that the 12 would go to the circumcision and Paul would go to the Gentiles. So Peter was an apostle to the circumcision. He was an apostle to the Jews. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 2, to the day of Pentecost, when the spirit gifts were given. And Peter and the other apostles, endued with the ability to speak in foreign languages, stood up to speak to the people. So Acts chapter 2, we read at verse 5, they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And there's a list of 13 of the nations that they came from. And in verse 14, we read that Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. So he's addressing Jews who are gathered together at Jerusalem for the feast. And thousands of them, as you read through the record in Acts, accepted the gospel and were baptized. But then, following the death of Stephen, persecution arose. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the ecclesia that was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And verse 4 says, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That might be a point of exhortation for us, brothers and sisters. We are not persecuted. We have not been scattered from our homes. But are we preaching the word at every opportunity that is given to us? 
Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Now, the Greek word that's translated scattered abroad in those three passages, Acts 8 verses 1 and 4 and 11 verse 19, is the word diaspora, from which we get our word dispersion. They were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So if we now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, we meet that word again. First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered diaspora throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And second Peter three, verse one says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. So first Peter and second Peter were sent to the same addressees those who were scattered abroad. Peter is fulfilling his commission and the Jerusalem agreement. He is an apostle to the Jews. Now scattered, they were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen because they had heard the gospel and believed and being baptized. So Peter was therefore inspired to write these two epistles to exhort and to strengthen them. So that's the context. First Peter and Second Peter are addressed to Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire and being persecuted. So the next thing we want to investigate is what were the times of which Peter spoke and wrote. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, where I should have told you to put a marker, and even I didn't. So Acts chapter 2. And let's have a look at what Peter said to that Jewish audience. He quoted from the prophecy of Joel. Actually, he did more than that. By the power of the Spirit, he expanded Joel in his context. We're going to have a look at Joel in our context later on. So Acts 2 and verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So the spirit gifts, which they could see and hear, we're told in a bit later on in uh, chapter 2, verse 33. He hath received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He hath shed for this, which he can now see and hear. Clearly they could hear the preaching in their own tongues. I believe they could also see the cloven tongues of fire sitting on the heads of the apostles as they spoke in the temple. And Peter says, these are the last days, because God had said through Joel that in the last days he would pour out his spirit. The spirit had been poured out. Therefore, by definition, these are the last days. 
Now, I'm going to take you through a sequence of passages now. We're not going to look them all up, but I will give you the references so you can make notes, which confirm scripturally that these are indeed the last days. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we all know. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. James chapter 5 and verse 3, where James writes to the rich in the Ecclesia, ye have heaped treasure together in, it should be, the AV has of, but Young's literally is in, which is the Greek, ye have heaped treasure together in the last days. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7 in Brother Thomas's translation, the end of all things hath approached. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, which we've read. There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. And Jude tells us that the apostles had foretold that there should be mockers in the last days. And Jude says, these be there. And finally, 1 John chapter 2. And verse 18, because it's so close to 2 Peter 3, we might look at this one. First of John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, what do all those passages have in common? He, um, Acts 2 Hebrews 1, James 5, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and 1 John. They are all written or spoken to Jews. Therefore, all of these warnings were delivered to the Jewish people. And clearly, these passages do not refer to the time of the end for which we look. We just read in John, it is the last time. It was the last time which God in Hebrews and through his apostles, James and Peter and Jude and John testified. It was the end of Jewish things of which these apostles spoke by the Spirit. But although these things are past, they are a mighty warning to us in these latter days. So what's the subject then of 2 Peter 3? Well, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, wrote of two coming divine judgments, Romans 2, verses 8 to 10, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Jesus taught in his parables that the wicked husbandmen would be destroyed, and the Pharisees recognised that he spoke of them. In the next parable, the parable of the wedding feast, he said that the murderers of his servants would be destroyed and their city would be burnt. Keep that marker in 2 Peter 3 and turn back to Matthew chapter 10. Here's an enigmatic statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But once we've got the context which we've just seen from Hebrews and James and Peter and Jude and John, the meaning of it becomes clear. So Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23. 
When they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now, clearly the apostles aren't still going over the cities of Israel. Jesus hasn't returned. He's speaking of a coming, which is in the past, not the one that we look for in the future. There are, in fact, in Scripture, three comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just take another passage by way of illustration. Um, Gospel of John, chapter 21, where Jesus and Peter are having a conversation. And Peter sees John and quietly says to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, First John, uh, John chapter 21, verse 22, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. John, of course, is still alive in AD 96 when the Spirit gave him the book of Revelation to write. So he lived through AD 70 and its aftermath. So the scriptures teach there are three comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. AD 30, when he came to preach the gospel and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. AD 70, when he came at the head of the Roman armies to destroy the murderers and burn up that city. And the future one for which we look. <coughs> now, this second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to avenge for his death and the death of his servants was not believed by some in the ecclesia when Peter wrote. And that's why he had to write 2 Peter 3. We read at verse 4 or verse 3, there shall come in the last days, in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Despite the fact that Jesus had spoken in great detail of it in the Olivet Prophecy. The apostles had asked Jesus, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the aeon, the age, the Mosaic age, which was nine. And Jesus taught that at the end of the Mosaic age, he would draw nine in judgment. Uh, if you just flip back to James chapter 5 again, James chapter 5 and verse 9, again, Brother Thomas's translation, Behold, the judge hath stood before the door. The Lord Jesus Christ was there, ready and waiting to come in judgment against the Jews. So, what information had God given these Jewish believers that they might understand the times in which they live? And we're going to look at that, and then later on, we're going to look at the information that God has given to us, that we might understand the times in which we live. And we'll find that God gave them plenty of information. So they would know where they were in the outworking of his purpose. And he's done the same for us. So judgment upon the Jews was clearly foretold in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is actually a continuous historic prophecy. Verses 15 to 26 
narrate the build-up to the Assyrian deportation of the Northern Kingdom. Verses 27 to 37, the removal of Judah to Babylon. Verses 38 to 63, the build-up to the coming of the Romans at the siege in AD 70. And verses 64 to 68, after AD 70, the Holocaust and, and its aftermath. So if a Jew worked through carefully Deuteronomy 28, he would see the already fulfilled things and know where he was in the outworking of the divine purpose and be able to anticipate what was going to come. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was clearly told that Messiah must come first and then the destruction will come. But when he came, because many of them didn't recognize him or believe him. So they missed vital information from Daniel chapter 9. And in the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24, which we will turn to and look at, Jesus expanded a whole sequence of events which his disciples were to look for. So Matthew 20, 24, and we'll look particularly at time words. Because the apostles had said in verse 3, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign? So Jesus spoke in verse 6 of wars and rumours of wars. And then said, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then he spoke about nation against nation, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. And then he said in verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrow. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. Verse 10, then shall many be offended. Many false prophets shall arise. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So he's given them a whole sequence of events that they were to watch for and see and know where they were. Once the gospel had been preached in all the world, which the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 had happened, then the end would come. So then verse 15, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, interpreted in Luke 21 as Jerusalem encompassed with armies, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. So whole sequence of events. And it took 40 years for those to work out. But those believers who carefully followed his words would know where they were. So verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But he given them the sequence. They would know when they were in the time of the end. And those epistles from which we have read reinforce that message. This is the last time. They've been given enough information and warnings so as to be prepared. And the disciples who watched, the disciples who understood Jesus' prophecy, escaped the destruction. Because history records that about AD 66, Cestus Gallus came with the Roman legions and circle Jerusalem. And people would say, how can you get out? But Cestus Gallus withdrew. 
and those who understood and believed the words of Jesus and his apostles got out and escaped the destruction. The Jews who didn't understand and believe perished because Vespasian and Titus came back and the siege continued to its bitter end. What a warning that is for us, brothers and sisters, and we shall look at continuous historic prophecy in relation to us in a few minutes. So let's go to this epistle now, Second Peter. What did Peter tell them in this context? Well, he encouraged them to manifest godly virtues and seek the kingdom in the opening verses of chapter 1. Then he reminded them in chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, of the absolute certainty of the prophetic word. We have a more sure word of prophecy. You do well to give heed to it, he said. In chapter 2, he warned them of the dangers of false prophets and teachers who would lead them astray. And then chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The intention of this epistle is to stir up minds, and hopefully it will stir up ours. To make us remember. Verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, we have to have in our minds both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The truth is not just about Jesus. Its foundation goes much further back. Verse 3, knowing this verse, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. The last days, as we've seen, are the times in which Peter wrote. The end of the Jewish age. There were scoffers then. And there are scoffers now. There are scoffers out there in the world who deny that there is a God. There are those, sadly, within our community who deny that God created everything in the manner described in Genesis. So verse 4, they said, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus isn't coming in judgment. The zealots in Jerusalem believed they could defeat the Romans. And today, the same spirit is there in Israel. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a young Israeli soldier who was part of the detachment of guard Mount Hermon. And I pointed out to him Ezekiel 38 and the fact that the Russian soldiers are basically on the northern border of Israel and that that chapter foretells that they're going to come over that border and invade. His response, we'll beat them, same as we've beaten everybody else that's come against us. That's the spirit. Where is the promise of his coming? We have futurism in the Ecclesia. Coming of the Lord's a long way off. I heard a brother once say, oh, it could be 100 years away. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's uniformitarianism, the basis of evolution which some are trying to tell us is the means that God used to create. Verse 5. This they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
Isn't it remarkable that there appear to have been those in the first century who denied the flood, and there are those today who deny that the whole world was submerged in water. Despite the evidence, just check out the geology of all the high mountains of the earth, all the high mountain ranges. They all contain water-laid fossils, including the top limestone cone of Everest. There are fossils up there. Those rocks were laid down underwater. The heavens and the earth, the cosmos that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But of course, the literal heavens and the planet Earth continued on. It was the whole antediluvian system of things that perished. And that's a pattern. For verse 7, the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And verse 12 looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So again, in AD 70, the heavens, sun, moon, and stars, and planet Earth were not destroyed, nor will they be in the future age, because God's purpose is to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And these are verses in which the commentators get themselves into a real tangle because they try to interpret these words based on human philosophy. The elements to them are earth, fire, uh, water, and air. So they say, well, how can fire destroy fire? You can't understand this. But all we've got to do is look at the way in which the spirit uses this word element. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 5. All we need to do is contextual Bible study. Hebrews 5 and verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the elements of the oracles of God and have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So the first principles of the truth in this context are the elements. Go back further to Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verse 9. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements Whereunto ye desire to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. They were the things of the Mosaic law. And in Colossians chapter 2, we read at verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the elements of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. These were things advocated by the Judaizers, and they were all to go. So back in 2 Peter 3, it will be the day, the end of verse 7, of the perdition of ungodly men. And that word perdition literally means to go to waste. So when Simon the sorcerer tried to buy the gift of giving the Holy Spirit gifts, 
Peter said, thy money go to waste with thee. Same word. And literally these men would go to waste because of their attitude to God. Verse 8 of 2 Peter 3 quotes Psalm 90 and verse 4, which contrasts God's existence with man's mortality. And the context in Psalm 90 is because man is mortal, he needs to use the time that he has very wisely. And some of these people to whom Peter was writing didn't do that. So verse 9 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Compare that with 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. He speaks about those who sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. God waited 120 years, plus seven days, for repentance. The people saw the ark being constructed. Then they saw Noah and his family go in. And then they saw the wonder of the animals coming from all directions and going in orderly fashion, two by two, into the ark. They had their opportunity, but none of them took it. And so Jesus gave a, God gave a window of opportunity for escape to, from Jerusalem in AD 70. And those who were watching took it and did not perish. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And those who did not give heed to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles and the Old Testament prophets perished. So, brothers and sisters, as they were living on the brink of a judgment, and the overthrow of their entire society, so are we. Are we giving any more heed to the words of the prophets and the apostles than they did? Will the coming day of the Lord come upon us as a thief, or will we be ready? Well, like them, we have continuous historic prophecies to tell us where we are today in the outworking of the purpose of God. We looked at three that they had. Let's look at three now that we have. First of all, the prophecy of Joel. Peter quoted from that on the day of Pentecost. And he identified clearly that they were, in point of time, in Joel chapter 2. Things have moved on now. We're in Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. 1948, the state of Israel was established. We might have slightly different views on Jerusalem. Was it 1967 when the Jews took the old city? Or was it 1980 when they declared it their eternal capital? But the exiled people are back in their land. And they have Jerusalem. 
So what's the next stage? Verse 2. In those days and at that time when I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Parted my land. Isn't it remarkable that Resolution 181 of the United Nations to sort out the problem that Britain could not solve under the mandate Resolution 181 of the United Nations was called the Partition of Palestine. And in verse 4 of Joel 3, we have God speaking against Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Palestine. Who's there now? Well, Hezbollah are up there in the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and Hamas are in the coasts of Palestine, just where the Philistines were and manifesting the same attitude toward Israel as the Philistines did. Exactly as the purpose of God required. Verse 9. Proclaiming this among the Gentiles. Margin, sanctify war. Wake up the mighty men. Holy war. Do you know what the Russian Pope said when the Russian army went into Syria a few years ago? He said, this is a holy war. The Russian army is going into Syria to protect the Christians. And we all know about jihad and the desire of some Muslims to exterminate Israel and drive the Jews into the sea. We're seeing elements of holy war, both in Islam and in Christianity. And of course, the arms trade is phenomenal. They are arming themselves to the teeth for coming warfare. Verse 12. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow. Their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley at the margin of threshing. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of threshing. That's Armageddon language, straight out of Revelation 16. No, Revelation 16 is straight out of Joel chapter 3 and Micah chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 2 and other passages. So we're going to see, probably not with mortal eyes, the eclipse of the modern state of Israel. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are our days, brothers and sisters. Israel is back in the land. She has fervent enemies. There is holy war. The nations are arming. All these foreshadow the second coming. Are we ready? Or will that come upon us as a thief? Let's turn now to Ezekiel 38, second of our continuous historic prophecies. Brethren have been expanding this chapter for decades, but it has really, really come to life in the last few years. There was a time when Russia militarily and economically was in decline. It was said there's only one superpower in the world, the United States. Some brothers were saying, well, maybe Turkey is the king of the north. Russia is now totally reliant, revived militarily. She's gone into Syria. She's on Israel's border. A Russian invasion of Israel is now feasible both militarily and politically. I'll be watching. 
verse 5, Persia or Iran, strangely allied to Russia. Persia, Iran, Shiite Islam, hates Israel, part of their religious code. One might also almost say their statement of faith that the Zionist state has got to be destroyed before the 12th Imam will appear. Allied to Russia, which is Eastern Orthodox. But this is what God said would happen, and it has happened. They're going to come upon the mountains of Israel, says the chapter. And there they are, building settlements on the mountains of Israel. Call a nation called Israel, which Ezekiel 37 absolutely required that it should be. But in the days before the declaration of the state of Israel, nobody knew what it was going to be called, apart from the inner cabinet. So the first stamps bore the legend Hebrew Post, because the stamp printers didn't know what the nation was going to be called. But it's Israel. Verse 12. To take a spoil and take a prey. For years, brethren speculated. Could it be oil? Well, now vast fields of oil and gas have been discovered under the land and under the sea off the coast of Israel. Mr. Putin wants to control energy sources. He's tried to do it peaceably and he's been rebuffed. War will come. Verse 13, Sheba and Dina. The divide between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam is now clear. And the Shias are in the north and the Sunnis are in the south, which is exactly what Ezekiel 38 requires. And the merchants of Tarshish. Britain has built the two largest naval ships ever in her history. She's got a 15 million pound naval base in Bahrain. She's patrolling the Persian Gulf. She's in the region of Sheba and Dida. All of these things have come to pass in my lifetime. Are we ready, brothers and sisters, for the final stage? One more. Revelation 16. Another continuous historic prophecy where we can see history written in advance and know exactly where we are. So the first vial poured out upon the earth. 1789, the French Revolution. The second vial poured out upon the sea, 1793, British blockade of the seas around Europe. Some years ago, we went to Brittany to a town called Pontivy, which is the upper limit of navigation on the river. And there were the gigantic earthquake, earthworks of the canal, which Napoleon had built to carry his naval stores through the spine of Brittany into Brest by the back door, as it were because he could not ferry naval stores around the coast because of the British blockade. And so this huge canal was built to try and get round it. Verses four to seven. 1797, Napoleon in the Alps, 26 victories in just over a year. Verses eight and nine, the fourth vial. The overthrow in 1806 of the Holy Roman Empire after over a thousand years. Verses 10 to 11, against the papacy, Napoleon imprisoned the Pope. And then verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great sea <coughs> Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. 
and from 1820, the, the Ottoman Empire contracted from the edges. First Greece and then other nations broke away. And that resulted when the Ottoman Empire was finally overthrown in 1917. That resulted in Britain moving into that area. David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, wanted to paint the whole of that part of the Ottoman Empire pink and make it part of the British Empire, build railways across it from Landbridge to India. But Winston Churchill said, there's no way we can do this. There's no way the British army, the British economy, after this war, can support the size of standing army that we don't have to put into the Middle East to police all those Muslims. So what the British did, they set up puppet kings. Faisal in Baghdad, Abdullah in Jordan, Ibn Saud in, in Riyadh, the Shah in Tehran. I believe they are the kings of the East, <coughs> Revelation 16, verse 12, put there by Britain, that they might fulfill their part in the outworking of the purpose of God. And then verse 13, three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. We've seen the uprise of the beast in Western Europe. The Pope has been reduced to the status of a false prophet. And the dragon power is alive and well in Moscow and ready to move south to Constantinople where it belongs. And what spirit is emanating from these three? It is to gather the nations to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Where do the nations gather? Well, they gather in the United Nations General Assembly in New York. And what's the spirit in that assembly? Well, between 1955 and 2013, they passed 77 resolutions against Israel and one against the Palestinians. The United Nations has defined Israel as the only racist country in the world. A British MP, Nas Shah, put up a Facebook post saying that if only the Jews in Israel could be relocated among their friends in the United States, there would be total peace in the Middle East, the oil price would drop, and everybody would be happy. Soon, the nation's final solution to the Jewish problem is going to be unveiled. Verse 16. He gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And we've read in Joel, and we can read in other prophecies what's going to happen. But before he does that, verse 15, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And that is what some of our brothers and sisters in the first century didn't do, and they were overthrown in the coming judgment. Brothers and sisters, are we ready? Are we watching? So we've reached verse 11, brothers and sisters. 
Seeing all then, then that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? It is, of course, a question. Um, the question mark doesn't appear until the end of verse 12. But we'll take verse 11 first of all. So what manner of persons ought we to be? How do we answer that question? Well, what we should do, I suggest, is ask that question of Scripture and listen to its answers. So come with me to the first epistle to the Thessalonians and chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman and child, and they shall not escape. Ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Do you notice the difference in, in those verses of the distinction between the you and the they? The world in which we live is asleep. They are talking about peace and safety. And they are going to be taken by surprise by events. Whereas we are, or we should be, in the light, enlightened by the word, in the day, awake, watching. And we saw in part one that those who lived prior to AD 70 were exhorted to watch. Some of them didn't. We're living in a parallel situation. They were at the end of Judah's commonwealth. We are at the end of the times of the Gentiles. So what should we be watching? I'm going to suggest there are three key areas that we need to watch. And although they are separate and distinct, they're also intertwined. We should be watching them all. So first of all, we need to be watching ourselves. Come with me to the second epistle of John. And in the second epistle of John, we have two very different exhortations. First of all, verse 5, 2 John, verse 5. Now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. We show love by obeying God's commandments. Don't show love by saying to a brother and sister or sister who's walking in darkness, it's okay, God loves you. You'll be all right. So love is to obey his commandments. We need to watch that we're doing that. Because, verse 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. 
He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him rejoice. For he that biddeth him rejoice is in fellowship with his evil deeds. That's the Greek, koinonia. If we let false teachers in, we lose everything. And Peter warned about that in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But there were also false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So we need to watch. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're very good at examining other people, watching other people. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle warns us. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not that Jesus Christ is in you? except ye be reprobates. So we need to focus on ourselves. Remember that in the end of the first class, we looked at Revelation 16, and very briefly alluded to verse 15. We are at the moment in the 14th verse. The spirits of demons have gone forth to gather the nations to the great day of God Almighty. And then, the Lord Jesus returns. Verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There are just a very small number of passages where we can actually draw a line in the text and say, at this point, Jesus returns. Revelation 16 is one of them. We can put a line between verses 14 and 15 and say, this is the point in the prophecy at which Jesus returns. And he warns, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And I believe this is an allusion back to Exodus 32, where Israel had made the golden calf. And Aaron had said, tomorrow is a feast unto Yahweh. And the record says they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And when Moses came to the gate of the camp, he saw the people were naked, dancing around the golden calf. They had not kept their garments. But there was one man who had. His name was Joshua. He had gone with Moses into the mount, and he went as high as he was allowed toward the presence of God. And for 40 days while Moses was in the mount, he stayed there, as close to the things of God as he could be. And he kept his garments. And when Moses and Joshua came down from the mount, it's clear from the text that Joshua had no idea what was going on in the ecclesia down below on the plain. We like Joshua, watching, keeping as close as we can to the things of God, as far away as we can from the things of the world. Moses was in heaven. Christ is in heaven. Moses was to return. So is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people down on the plain had lost their vision. 
And if you read the margin of Proverbs 29, verse 18, where that occurs, it says, when the people lose their vision, they are made naked. And that's exactly what happened. So Joshua is our example. The second thing we need to watch is the ecclesia. Turn back in Revelation to chapter 3. Here we have the epistle to Sardis. Revelation 3 verse 1. Unto the angel of the ecclesia in Sardis write, These things said he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Young's literal translation of that is, become watching. If you haven't been watching before, start now. And that's what the Apostle Paul did with the Ephesian Ecclesia, when he called the elders together to Miletus and said, I've been with you for three years, and I haven't shown to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Be warned, of your own self shall men arise. And there are some pretty perverse things being spoken today about inspiration and creation. We need to watch the ecclesia, particularly in, in the current circumstances, when there are brothers and sisters who, for various reasons, don't want to meet together as we are doing today. And the third thing we need to watch is the signs in the world. Come back to Luke and chapter 21. This particular section of Luke 21 is really the Olivet Prophecy for Gentiles. So much of it is about the Jews in the lead up to AD 70, as we saw from Matthew 24 in the first class. But in Luke 21, the end of 20, verse 24, we read that Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We looked at that through Joel in class one. But then Jesus said, there shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. Upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And that's what we should be doing, brothers and sisters. We should be watching, we should be looking up, we should be lifting our heads, because we're nearly there. And we should also be watching ourselves. Verse 34, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. That parallels First Thessalonians chapter 1 that we looked at earlier. And watching is associated with prayer, as it is in many other places in the scriptures. So when the Apostle Paul wrote to Corinth, to Colossae, he said, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 
Our prayers should be watchful. We should be looking for things and for individuals to pray for. And as we've already read in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and at verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We should be praying about the things we are watching, both outside and inside. So back to first, second Peter 3 and verse 11. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Now, the context, as we've seen, it's AD 70 and the destruction of Judas Commonwealth. But do we imagine that we have any less responsibility in these Gentile end times? The responsibility to be holy in our conversation. This was a great issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Come back with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees who came from Jerusalem, taking issue with Jesus' disciples because they saw them eat bread with defile, that is to say, with unwashed hands. They said, in effect, your disciples are not being holy. Verse 3 of Mark chapter 7. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they baptize themselves, that's the Greek, different word to verse 3. Except they baptize themselves, they eat not. So they might have been touched by some Gentile dog, four legs or two in the market, and were therefore defiled. So they washed their whole body. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tables. So Jesus contends with them. And he says, you make the word of God of none effect by your tradition. And even his disciples didn't fully understand. So in verse 18, he says to his disciples, are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out of the draught, purging all meats. He's declaring all meats are clean. And he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, 13 things, the number of rebellion. These are the things which defile these are the things which, if they are in our lives, means we are not in holy conversation. In Mark chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ said, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. What's in our hearts? said of the Lord Jesus Christ that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. How do we measure up to that standard? Let's think about measuring. What standard do we use 
when we are assessing ourselves. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 and at verse 12 warned against comparing ourselves with ourselves. So what standards should we use? There are a number of Bible passages that set standards for us. And we know from the context that these are attitudes which God seeks. Let's go first of all to Psalm 15. There are many aspects of this that can help us. <clears throat> Psalm 15 begins with a question. Yahweh, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? That's where we want to be, brothers and sisters. It's wonderful to be assembled together here in person. But where we really want to be is in God's holy hill, in his tabernacle. So who's going to be there? Verse 2. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness. Both of those things are said of Noah. Noah was upright and perfect in his generations. God said to him, Thee only have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Noah was saved, as we've read in 1 Peter chapter 3. So he's a good example. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Works righteousness. Well, that's in the list of things which the faithful did in Hebrews chapter 11. After Hebrews has stopped narrating the events in the names, under the names of people, it talks about many who did various things. And one of them is work righteousness. And an example of that, or in Psalms, would be Phineas. Turn to Psalm 106. We know what Phineas did when all Israel were mourning because of Baal Peor. The prince of Simeon brought a Midianite woman into the camp and went into the tent, which you look into the Hebrew, is really the place of curse. And we read in verse 30 of Psalm 106 Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. What an example. More around us would say that what Phineas did was barbaric. God counted him as a righteous man for doing it. And it wasn't just Phineas. People of all nations can do that. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, where Peter is in the house of Cornelius. And at the very beginning of his speech to the family of Cornelius and, and his friends, he says in verse 35, but in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So that's what we have to do. The next thing that Psalm 15 says is, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Young Solomon is an example of that. But when God asked him, what he would that God would give him. Solomon said, give me wisdom that I may judge this sight so great a people. And God said, it was good that that was in your heart, that you didn't ask for riches or long life. I will give you those as well. God knows our motives. He knows what's in our hearts, whether it's truth or not. 
Verse 3 of Psalm 15. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. That's the tailbearer of Leviticus 19. You shall not go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people. Nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Think of David, who twice spared Saul's life, who would not lay his hand upon Saul because he was Yahweh's anointed. Does not reproach his neighbor. Well, David was about to do that to Nabal, but God sent Abigail to stop him. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Joab and Shimei and Adonijah were vile people. David, in his life, was unable to deal with them. But Solomon did, bringing his judgments against them. So we can work our way through the psalm. And Psalm 24, which is similar. And ask ourselves the question, is it me? Now, we saw in the first class in 2 John that we are to walk in love. And the great definition of love in the scriptures is 1 Corinthians 13. There are 16 aspects of agape listed there in verses 4 to, six, four to 8. It's another passage against which we can measure ourselves. How am I doing? Am I displaying this characteristic? So, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. So let's ask ourselves the question, do I suffer wrong? Am I kind? Do I ever envy or vaunt myself? Am I puffed up? And the result of our measuring is going to be different from every one of us. Because James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desire and enticed. We are unique. But if you substitute the name Jesus for the word charity, as it's printed there in the AB, you'll find it fits perfectly. He did suffer long. He was kind. He never envied. He never vaunted himself. He was not puffed up himself. And then put your own name there and see how good the comparison is. So back to 2 Peter 3 and verse 11. <clears throat> Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In passages like Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, 1 Corinthians 13, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, all tell us how to do that. But we have to put the effort in to identify our shortcomings and then do something about it. Conversation, of course, is more than just speech. Conversation in its New Testament context is our whole way of life. So the Apostle Paul, referring to the time when he was Saul of Tarsus, says, Ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the ecclesia of God and wasted. That's Galatians 1 verse 13. He was single-minded. Nothing else in his life mattered but bringing under Jewish justice those believers in Jesus. He must find them. He must silence them. 
It wasn't the word of God that drove him on, but his zeal for the traditions. We need to be sure that our conversation, we are motivated solely by the word. So turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have the principle of what we need to do. Ephesians 4 and verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old way of life, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's the very things we've been thinking about in 2 Peter 3 verse 11. That's the principle of what we have to do. But how do we do it? I'm convinced that the scriptures never tell us to do something without in some way showing us the hand. So here we have it in this same chapter, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Stop lying, speak truth. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Don't take, give. Verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Don't pull down, build up. And I suggest that's a special responsibility for all of us in the ecclesia at the moment. It's so easy to pull down, so easy to be negative in the current climate. What we need to do is build one another up, encourage one another to meet together as we are doing now. So back to our chapter, 2 Peter 3 and verse 13. We looked at verse 12 in part 1. Nevertheless, verse 13, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's the third mention of heaven and earth in the chapter. We have the first one in verse 5. The heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Second one in verse 7. The heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire. And now in verse 13. New heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So is this the third heaven that the apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. He was caught up to the third heaven and heard unspeakable words. Was that man, was it Paul? Carried forward in vision as Ezekiel was taken in vision in chapter 8 to Jerusalem while he still sat in his house. Was he carried forth in vision into the kingdom and saw exactly what it's going to be like? It's certainly the heavens and the earth which is spoken about in Isaiah chapter 65, where God says there, I'm going to create new heavens and a new earth. And clearly, it doesn't mean a new universe and a new planet. The context tells us what God means. Isaiah 65 verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. Jerusalem was about to become a place of great sorrow. Her people 
were going to experience anything but joy in the days of AD 70. But, says the apostle, something better is coming. So, verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. As the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, says verse 22. Mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 24, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. And those are the blessings that God is going to bring upon the mortals. So how much more for those who are counted saints in Christ? So back in 2 Peter 3, it's a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Both of the previous heavens and earth were swept away due to wickedness. Man corrupted God's way in the earth in the days of Noah, and they slew his son prior to AD 70. Psalm 72, if you care to read it, has a lot to say about righteousness. The righteousness wherewith the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the earth. Time and again it comes in the psalm. No earthly politician will put in his manifesto, elect me and I will judge in righteousness. Not the language they speak. So, verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. This verse poses several questions. Are we looking? There are signs all around us. Are we being diligent? The Greek means to exert oneself, to make an effort. Are we using, have we used the lockdown to review our lives, to make changes, to ensure we keep further away from the world than we used to? Look for such things. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace. Are we in peace? Do we have peace with God being justified by our faith? Or is our faith weakening due to the influence of worldly thinking? That's what was happening then, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Their faith was weakening. Are we, as verse 14 says, without spot? James tells us about that in chapter 1 of his epistle. And verse 27, James 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's the danger. We can be spotted by the evils of the world. And the last word in verse 14, blameless. That word occurs in Philippians chapter 2 and at verse 15, where the apostle is exhorting our brothers and sisters in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, 
that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. So much there for us. Are we, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, shining as lights, are we holding forth the word of life? If we are, the Apostle Paul will rejoice in the day of Christ, that his labours were not in vain. Verse 15 of 2 Peter 3. And it can, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. We thought about the long-suffering of God uh, back in verse 9 in the first class. Many of us expected the Lord to have been here, but the number of his elect is clearly still being made up. God is long-suffering not willing that certain should perish, but that they should come to repentance. Look what Peter has to say there about the Apostle Paul. So there was a time when Peter was in the Ecclesia in Antioch, an Ecclesia which contained many Gentile brothers and sisters, and they were all breaking bread together. And then certain Jewish brothers came down, claiming that they were from James and saying the gospel that Paul preached is incomplete. You Gentiles have got to be circumcised and keep the law as well as doing the things that Paul says. And Peter succumbed to the peer pressure. We don't know, but it's quite possible that those brothers from the Jerusalem Ecclesia said to Peter, what you're doing is not right. Breaking bread with uncircumcised men. If this gets back to the Jerusalem Ecclesia, you won't be welcome there. And Peter caved in and stopped breaking bread with the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul had to take Peter and rebuke him before the whole ecclesia, Galatians 2 and 8. And Peter took that rebuke. And when he came to the great conference in Acts 15, Peter was the first one to stand up and support what Paul was doing. And look what he calls him here. Our beloved brother Paul. What a lesson for us, brothers and sisters, in relation one to another. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Peter's giving his endorsement here by the Spirit to all of the epistles of Paul. They are scripture just as much as the Old Testament is scripture. There were unstable brothers in the first century Ecclesia, and unstable brothers in our Ecclesians, who have no sure foundation. And Peter says unequivocally, the end of those who rest scripture is destruction. We have to read and believe and obey. <clears throat> Verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. We have to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We have to be constantly aware of the danger of being led away by the thinking of the flesh. Verse 18, but growing grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, 
to know God and his son Jesus Christ is eternal life. We have to know him. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> we've seen that those to whom Peter wrote were living in an end time, and so are we. God's judgment of the people of that time was clearly predicted. So it is with us. They were told in great detail by Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ what God required of them. Same is true now. They had their signs, and all came to pass. We have our signs. We can see them coming to pass in the world day by day. Are we preparing for his coming? Because the third coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is about to burst upon the Gentile world. We are commanded to watch and pray. Their world perished in the flames that consumed the temple. Our world will be swept away by the judgments of God. Those who hearken to the warning of survive and they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So will we, brothers and sisters, individually give heed to the warnings, take heed to the exhortations, and be found watching when our Lord returns. In the words of Peter, wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Thank you.